Hey everybody, this is G Martz and welcome back to another episode of Biz Books where I'm interviewing really great authors of great business books about the books and taking a deep dive into them. And today I am honored to have Trey Taylor uh, with me. Trey is the author of A CEO Only Does Three Things, Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite. Uh, Trey, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Gene, so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, just a, a couple just sort of background things. For First of all, where am I talking to you from? Where are you based? So we live in South Georgia. We're in between uh, Orlando and Atlanta, a little town called Valdosta. Very nice. And um, give us, you know, a, a little bit of your background and how you came to, you know, write this, you know, this book. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I actually uh, went to law school, uh, came out of law school right at the uh, top of the first internet bubble. And so I worked at uh, some of the big internet companies, uh, you know, from back in the day, WebMD was, uh, I was one of the first hundred employees there, and uh, went from there into venture capital and spent uh, a good piece of my career in venture capital, both inside funds and inside uh, companies doing corporate venturing with uh, companies called uh, like Earthlink and uh, AOL and uh, companies like that. Uh, I had a, a, a family situation that came up. We lost my dad in 2005. And so I moved home to take over the family business. And, uh, you know, I came in as the CEO and uh, the day after my first day on the job, I shut the door and Googled, how do you be a CEO? Because I didn't know. And that was the genesis of the book is as I learned how to do the job, I, I consulted with other companies. I had friends ask me questions. And the common refrain was, you really should put this stuff in a book. Well, that took me a long time and I needed a global pandemic to sort of give me a kick to make that happen. And so uh, I spent most of the pandemic uh, actually putting the thoughts down, refining them, working with editors, and uh, and finally bringing the book out in uh, November of 19. That is great. Yeah. You know, it is, um, the, the book itself is needed. It is, uh, it's really a playbook for anybody that wants to run a company, regardless of the size. And, uh, and by the way, you're bringing up all this nostalgia. You're talking about WebMD and Earthlink and, you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's been been a while since I've heard those terms, you know. Which, yeah, that's how old I am. That AOL was a dream job for me back in the day, you know. Unbelievable. Well, I'm the same way. I mean, I'm old enough, you know, dial-ups and you know, mailing CDs yeah. and all that. So um, all right, so let's dig into the book. Um for starters, um, you, you you start off your book talking about the essentials and you talk about what's called motivational intelligence. Um, tell me what that means. Motivational intelligence really is a concept that was honed by uh, Ron Willingham, was a good mentor of mine. And, and Ron said, look, until you understand the upshot of what your life will be like when you achieve what you want, your internal psychological systems will not engage on all cylinders to produce those results. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you try to motivate yourself with things uh, which we all do. And, you know, it's a way that we keep score against, uh, you know, are we achieving what we want? Um, you know, you'll get a little bit of motivation on that. But as you engage uh, at a deeper level and really begin to look for the impact, that's what activates the, uh, you know, collective unconscious plug in inside of us that really makes work feel like uh, play and get us into the zone of motivational intelligence. So I really want CEOs to understand that it is true for CEOs, but it is also true for everyone that you lead. And so we, uh, you know, you, you've read the book and you've seen uh, the, the mental model that we use, which yes. is the three dimensions of human um, I think, performance. I think I feel I am, right? Exactly. Right. And so for hundreds of years, we've known how to educate people in the intellectual, the I think space. Mm. And, and probably since the late uh, 40s and 50s, we've, we've understood the impact of emotions on human behavior. Mm. But it's only relatively recently that, that the wide world has discovered uh, the impact of, of managing, parenting, uh, believing, acting in the I am space, in the identity-based space. And so uh, really great CEOs know how to motivate people by speaking to who their identity is and who that identity wants to become or should become. You know, it's, you know, it, it, it's a hard job because if you're a CEO, I mean, you could be managing a team of 
10 people in a small business or thousands of people in a larger business, you know, how do you, how do you figure that out? I mean, do you, do you pick certain groups or do you focus on certain people to try and provide that type of, you know, that, that, that type of motivation? No, I think it's, you know, it's everybody that you come in contact with as the CEO. I mean, that, that's what great CEOs do is they speak to us at our level of identity. Now, are they speaking to us one-on-one -on -one because there are only 10 of us? Mm -hmm. or, or are they speaking on a, a, a Twitter platform to say, if you believe what I believe, this is who we are. And that's the, that's the core construction, anthropologically speaking, of a tribe. Right. right. A tribe is a group of people who fundamentally believe the same thing about the world and really great CEOs know that and speak in terms of we are. You know, to emphasize this point and, and how influential a CEO can be to, to, to motivate a team of people, um, you use the story of Caesar um, and his battle with Pompey. Tell us tell us a little bit about that. And it's the decisiveness that he that that he showed. Yeah, absolutely. So people, uh, audiences where I speak, you know, people love historical stories that really sort of illustrate good points. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really fond of the story of Caesar crossing the Rubicon. So uh, if you know your Roman history, you know, Caesar became a, a, a general and imperator, which is where we derive the term emperor later in history. And he goes into Gaul, which is this massive, uh, very scary sort of state of wilderness to the north of Italy. And it, it goes all the way from sort of Spain to Germany, all the way up into even Great Britain and that sort of thing. And he subjugates Gaul, largely subjugates all of Gaul, and uh, was a great hero for having uh, done this to the Roman populace. But he was a great threat to the sort of ruling class of which he was a member uh, for yeah. generations and generations. So he's coming back to Rome and the traditional route is to come park your army at the uh, banks of this river Rubicon, which you and I probably as Americans wouldn't consider a river at all. It's a very thin stream. I've been there. I've walked over the uh, river myself. And, uh, you know, you come and you disband your army and then you present yourself as a citizen, not as a general uh, to the people of Rome in the form of the Senate, who then grants you a triumph as a way of saying thank you. And so he is in full preparation of doing that. Well, his political enemies in the Senate send an ambassador, a herald, um, uh, to the, the general and says, uh, disband your armies, don't proceed into Italian territory, don't proceed into Rome uh, under arms as you're not supposed to. Uh, present yourself for indictment at the Senate, you nor your armies will receive a triumph. Mm -hmm. And a triumph, is, we have nothing like it in our civilization. It was the pinnacle moment of being a Roman. As the general rides down the Via Sacra with, a, you know, with the entire populace being given paid time off of work, slaves, uh, freemen, everyone is paid to be off. No one's allowed to work. Um, you, and, and they put a slave in the back of the chariot. And mm. the slave whispers to the general, you are not a god. You are not a god. <laughs> you are not a god. That's the... That's the, the status that is being bestowed at that place. Yes. And so, um, you know, he, he loses that. He's not going to receive that triumph, which is a tremendous slap in the face, very political move from his enemies headed primarily by Pompey, who's, who's called the great Pompeius Magnus. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, Caesar's a very well-mannered uh, person and he dismisses the ambassador and says, uh, you know, come, come back to me in the morning for my answer. And the, in the morning, the ambassador shows up and the general's tent has been taken down and he finds the general pacing on his uh, horse uh, in front of the river. And Caesar looks at him and says, Aliyah jocta es, the die has been cast, which is, you know, it, it, to us hearing Latin is like he's carved out of marble and he's this very important. <laughs> he's being really cheeky. He's having a good time. He's using a phrase that Roman legionaries, when they're playing dice, would say, all right, now the game's afoot. Let's go. Let's have a good time. And he spurs his horse and rides through the river Rubicon. Mm -hmm. And the thought that I have on this is, you know, north of that river, we don't know his name today. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare didn't write a play about a guy who didn't cross the river Rubicon, right? right? It, it, it is only Caesar's boldness and his, um, and his tenacity in pursuing his goals uh, that made him a legend of somebody that we know today. The 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 super like his, easy his, conclusion. 
Yeah, his enemies, had, I mean, they had overwhelming numbers of resources, Absolutely. And wealth and men, yet he still, he still did that. He did it because he, he conceived of it as a private battle, right. not as a public one. And when he rode into Rome, he rode into a city devoid of his enemies. They had all decamped hmm. and gone to places like Egypt and Greece and southern Italy. They fled because they had no backbone and they had no, uh, they had no trust in their ability to rally people against Caesar. And there are a lot of lessons there. But number one among them is be bold when you think you're right. And that's, and I guess that's the biggest takeaway. I mean, this happened 2000 years ago, but even now, um, if you, you have a conviction for your beliefs, you believe that you are right. Um, you know, at some people, you know, if you're running a company, you are a leader, you've got to take a step out and, and lead. Right. And that, that's the big takeaway, correct? That's what you get paid for, right? At the end of the day, yeah. you get paid to be intrepid, which is to take that calculated risk and uh, I really don't like it when my, when my CEO coaching clients are hearing from their teams, hmm. uh, you're right, boss, you're right, boss, you're right, boss. If that's the case, I think maybe you have the wrong team or you have the wrong strategy. You're not pushing hard enough to be innovative. Uh, I have a, an initiative that I kicked off in the middle of last year, and my team kicked and screamed until January, where we fought, saw the first sort of revenue from that initiative. And now, of course, it was all their idea the whole time. That's what leadership looks like, you know, is that you have to really roll those dice. And if you fail, who cares? Right. Fail. Right. It doesn't matter. We go forward with it. And so that's the that's the story of uh, Caesar crossing the great story. In my own version. Yeah. It's a great story. Um, and you talk about motivating your teams and, and having them behind you. So, you know, the, the next thing that you like to address in the book is is about your overall culture in a company, you know, I mean, you, you talk about um, how, you know, the, the concept or the definition of culture today is really you know, different than it was in the past, you know, it goes, it, it, you know, it expands, you know, beyond all typical you know, definitions. So tell us about your definition of company culture and why it's so important for a CEO. So culture is rooted completely in the shared values of the team. Mm -hmm. And uh, culture shares a Latin root uh, word with what we would consider cultivate, right? It's the things that we take care of and protect from other things. So right. I, I really look at it as, a, as almost the role of a gardener. You know, I want to make sure that the things that produce fruit are allowed to do that. And I want to take out the weeds and the creeping vines and things that would, would restrict that. Well, in terms of how we run companies, it matters very much to get those values articulated in a way that everyone can look at them and say, I believe and identify with those or I don't, right? And the don'ts, they have to go find somewhere where they can find values that they do agree with. Mm -hmm. And that frees up space to have more people come into the organization that believe what we believe and want to behave in the way that we want to behave to support those values, to make those values true in the world. That's the core function of culture. I don't like the idea of a chief cultural officer. I think that is a, a, a unique province of the CEO to really be that head gardener, if you will. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, and I, and I, I agree with you. I mean, it's almost like the CEO really should be the chief cultural officer of a company. There shouldn't have to be a, you know, a, you know, a, a separate person doing that. Um, and you lead by example. I mean, you gave the example in the book about Henry Ford um, and, and what he did to, to confront, you know, employee turnover and create the kind of culture. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So Ford looked around and said, you know, it, it's a time where wages are really not uh, sufficient uh, to support a lot of, uh, you know, family growth and values that he held outside of just business values. Mm -hmm. And he did the math. And uh, unfortunately, he was in sort of the Microsoft or the Facebook of his time, right? So he was making a lot of money. And instead of uh, making, I think his quote was, instead of making uh, a few men millionaires, we want to make, uh, you know, thousands of men able to support a family in today's society and that sort of thing. So he gave uh, a very high wage at that point. I'm forgetting the exact number. I think it's $5 a day, mm -hmm. which is a very high wage. He provided a company store that had no markup, which was an, an innovation at that time. So you used to, you know, you'd take your goods, you'd mark them up 2X, you'd sell them to people on credit. They'd never work their way out of the debt to the company. That was a way of retention back then. He didn't do that. Uh, he provided uh, company sponsored housing 
uh, company-sponsored uh, medical care mm. and that sort of thing. He really took care of his people, and his people, you know, went from having an average of uh, uh, eighteen months in the industry to you know spending entire careers, which was true until the '80s. You know, people would go work for the auto companies and they would stay for thirty years, which is unheard of, you know, today. But but that that wellspring of the culture that Henry Ford created in the auto industry is where that came from. Now, part of that sort of, you know, that, that, that culture, that appreciation for employees, um, you know, also expands to, you know, outwardly to your customers. So you, you talk about rituals that great companies have. You mentioned Rich Carlton. You mentioned Chick-fil-A. Um, what do you mean by, by rituals? You talk about persistent rituals. You talk about daily rituals. Give us, if you can, give us a definition of those and also some examples. Yeah, rituals are the way that we enshrine in our behaviors and the behaviors of our people, the outward expression of our values. So sometimes they include customers, of course, sometimes they include only internal folks and that sort of thing. The key that I work with clients on is figuring out what rituals best underline the values that you have. I have a client in the entertainment space, for example, and, uh, you know, they are all about having fun. And how do you have fun? How do you include customers and still keep to the values, run a profitable business, keep serious people on serious topics and that sort of thing. And so they ritualize those in certain ways uh, that they have a blast and, uh, you know, they have uh, they have themed costume days once a month in the organization. So the last time I was there, it was uh, it was Big Top Thursday. So everybody in the company was dressed as if they had gone to the circus and there were women with fake beards on and, and uh, top hats and all kinds of things, you know, and, and yet they were on zoom calls and they were doing their work and all of that sort of thing. It was just a fun and lighthearted atmosphere that they love to, uh, they love to do. Why do they do that? Because creativity is at the absolute center. It's the flywheel of their business. And the more they can fight against sort of a corporate stifling structurism and that sort of thing, the more creativity they make possible. And it's why they've stayed at the top of their field for 30 something years. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I just I, I just wrote a few weeks ago for Entrepreneur about the exact thing you mentioned in your book about, you know, uh, Chick-fil-A train their employees to say, my pleasure, you know, instead of you're welcome. <laughs> because it, it it's a ritual, but it, it has it has an impact both on the customer and the employee, right? When you have these you know, persistent rituals that you say that companies should practice. Why do, you, why do you think that is? Like, why not just say you're welcome? Well, I think it's what you want to convey about your values. Right. And so if I say, you know, a perfunctory, you're welcome, or something that has no emotional fuel attached to it, then there's no emotional fuel being injected into the relationship. Um, I very unabashedly have stolen the my pleasure concept for my operating businesses. So I encourage all of my people to say that all the time. Why? Because I want my customers to know that it is a pleasure and a privilege to do business with them. They have other choices and that sort of thing. And it's just different enough still, even though we've had Chick-fil-A and the Ritz in the world for so long, it's just different enough that uh, when they're dealing with you know, potentially an unpleasant topic to hear that somebody is taking pleasure and is not rushed mm. in helping you out. Yeah, that's great. That is great. All right. So that's company culture. I mean, we, we've talked about, you know, your motivation. We've talked about, you know, the kind of culture you should be having in your company. Let's turn to people because that's the other big section in your book. Um, you write about uh, Larry Page, the CEO of Google, who I did not know this at all, but he apparently is, at one time he was approving or rejecting every one of the company's hires. Um, there were like 6,500 of them in 2017. And now they have like 85,000 people. And you said that Larry Page is still involved, you know, he plays a personal role in each hire. I mean, that sounds like, like an impossible thing to do. I mean, is, is he still doing that? And do you, do you really think that that's necessary for a CEO, a CEO to to have a personal role in, in the hiring of every single person in the company? So I do, uh, although there are extensions of that. So the <laughs> reason that you do the first 6,500 is to train everybody who's paying attention 
right. to do what you're doing, right. right? So if I can do that and then a thousand hiring managers learn what I'm doing, then I can take that from 6,500 to 85,000 people and achieve the same result. Hmm. And that's the real key of what CEOs have to do. You have to absolutely model adherence to your core values so that people understand that only behavior that looks like that is acceptable and a natural part of what we are doing here. So does does he still, I don't even know that he's still the CEO today. I, actually, I know that he isn't still the CEO today. Right. Yeah, there's another guy who runs Alphabet. But, um, but you know, in doing that for the first six or 7,000 employees, people would begin to say, I'm going to send this to Larry, but I know he's not going to like this part of the resume. So maybe I'll hold this guy back and do something else. They begin to self-modulate behavior to get the results that they wanted, which was to accord with his vision of who should be there. And that is the key proposition. If we're going to pour ourselves into building a culture, a special place where mm -hmm. our values are being proven true in the world, we have to select the right people to be on that journey with us. It doesn't mean that people who aren't on that journey are bad, are, are not as good, or not qualified. It doesn't mean any of that. There very well may be people who are smarter, faster, bigger, you know, whatever, mm. uh, than what we are doing. But it is, those, it is only those people invited to be a part of the tribe who want to be a part of the tribe and want to see those same values lived out in the world. You know, um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about hiring people and, you know, as you and I are talking, there's, there's significant labor disruption going on. There's, you know, a big shortage of workers as well. Businesses of all sizes are really looking to, you know, to, you know, for good qualified people and hiring is just like a big, big issue. Um, so, you know, you talk about, you know, when you're looking to bring people in, it's such a critical role for a CEO to play. Um, you want to look at people, potential hires using that three-dimensional approach, the I think, I feel, I am approach, uh, you know, when, when you're hiring people. How do you make that, you know, I mean, you, 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 you talked about I think, I feel, I am, um, you know, in, in a very good way. I mean, I, I can understand why you would want to be touching your employees in that way, but how can you apply that sort of model to hiring people, you know, you know, what, 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 how would you employ that? It's probably the easiest uh, little trick in the book. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the NLP neuro-linguistic programming uh, thought mindset there. Right. And right. so what it, what it means without, you know, sounding uh, sort of uh, uh, scaly on that, what right. it means is you get into the interview and you ask people, what do you think? How do you think about these kinds of problems? Interesting. And how do you feel about a situation that looks like this? And talk to me about the kind of person that you are, or even better question is, what kind of person would answer the question this way versus this way? Hmm. And you listen with a special set of ears to the answer, of course, but also how they are phrasing the answer. And I do quite a bit of this now, because when people don't really adhere to the values that I'm really interviewing for, they will say to me uh, that someone else would behave in this manner and this is the right way that it should be. And they'll really try to give me an interview answer. But when it's something that strikes a chord, you can definitely tell in body language immediately. And you can hear the language change where somebody says, well, I'm that kind of person and this is what I would do. So you just have to listen to the, I think I feel I am responses. Uh, all behavioral interviewing questions, of course, what would you do in this type of situation? What have you done in these types of situations in the past? You know, uh, what do you regret about this? Where, where do you think you did a good job? All behavioral type interviewing, not hypotheticals. Sure. You know, the, everybody knows how to interview for hypotheticals, but really targeting behavior to the I think I feel I am level. You know, it's funny too, because if you're running a company, I think most people don't really realize that uh, even people that are CEOs of large organizations, clearly they don't have all the answers. Um, myself, you know, I run a small business. I have my insecurities. I have my doubts. You know, if I'm interviewing somebody or if I even have a current employee that I am, rather than like asking for specific facts, but just asking, well, what's your opinion? Um, how, what do you think about this issue? Or how does this, you know, how does this make you feel? Um, not only do you get a better understanding of the person sitting across from you, but you also get some input back to you as a CEO that might help sure. you make decisions yourself, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I'm fond of telling people in interview situations that, you know, we're a remarkably capable organization. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you're sitting in an interview is because we've uncovered a place where we're not very good. That's what we're hiring somebody else to come in and help us with. And what we want you to do is to take this job position, if it, if it goes to you, and turn it into something where you're as excellent at that as we are about all the other things that we are good at. Sure. And if we can't get there, then you may not be the one for this position. So help me understand why you are. And if they can't show me, and, and often it becomes a... Um, it becomes interesting where they say, well, here's what you're doing wrong. And then they start to, well, I'm taking notes. Whether this person comes on with me or not, I'm still taking notes about the value of that proposition, that perspective that they're bringing. Uh, let's talk about compensation. Um, you write in your book that higher wages don't automatically cause employees to perform at higher levels um, of work. Um, why do you feel that? Quite way? the opposite, actually. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, every person has a dollar figure that they assign their worth. Okay. And they will work up to that dollar figure. And from my experiential research, no academic uh, research on this at all, you know, we'll, we'll work about 10 to 15 to 20% higher than that number before they begin to burn out. Hmm. Uh, subconsciously, if you, are, if you say to yourself that you're worth $50,000 a year and I pay you $150,000, you subconsciously absolutely must sabotage yourself from creating enough value to justify the 150. This is so uncomfortable. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to look at you and admit that they have some lower number in value or anything of that nature. Uh, but it's the case, even in my consulting gene, and I don't know that you'll find this interesting, but I do. Mm -hmm. um, I have stopped pricing my consulting hmm. because even my numbers are, are lower than the actual value delivered, right. substantially so. So I simply say to my clients, let's understand what we're going to accomplish in a 12-week sprint. You go and develop a number that you think that's going to create in value for your organization. And you pay me a percentage of that value, not the whole value, of course, a percentage <laughs> of that value. Gene, they pay me two to three X over what I think I would have submitted as an invoice in the first place. We all behave this way. So for compensation, what I do in the interview process is I say, look, there are five categories of compensation that we can address together. Please write them down. Uh, here's the total budget that I think we have for this position. Uh, and there's a, a large range involved there. Will you please come back to me and assign value in each of these five categories? So if you need benefits or tuition assistance or time off or, you know, all those kinds of things, plus salary, maybe bonus, maybe commission if it's, mm. a, if it's a position that supports that. Here's the key. They always come back to me with a more workable number than probably what I would have thrown out there. Gosh. It's always an extremely personalized compensation plan. They set it so they can't complain later or they can't feel cheated or anything of that nature at a later time because they're the ones that set it. And the other thing that is uh, really a problem in a lot of organizations is, gosh, we don't want somebody else finding out what we just hired somebody. We don't have that problem. Hmm. They talk about their compensation very openly because hmm. they're getting what they want out of the position. Hmm. And so we, we've got stories in the books about that. But, you know, I, I hired a young lady who was taking care of her grandmother who was in hospice. I think that story is in the book. Yep. And uh, she said, look, I really want to take the job, but I got to have Fridays off. I take care of my grandmother. She's not going to be with me long. And so we said, write it up. Hmm. figure out how to get the job done in four days instead of five, mm -hmm. show us the compensation that's fair. She did. Hmm. We, we took a trial with her. We said, we'll, we'll give this a shot. We did it for four weeks. We thought it was great. We let it go. She was able to spend every single Friday with grandmother. They were in the kitchen cooking grandma's recipes, hmm. which she wrote, hand wrote down on uh, index cards. And we eventually turned into a book after her grandmother passed away. She came back to us and said, uh, you know, my grandmother's gone. I'm coming back to work on Fridays now. She didn't ask for more uh, uh, compensation to do that. And she said to me in a, in, a, in a review process later, 
I would never have this gift of recipes and all of those memories and the stories that came with them with my grandmother, unless you guys lived your values the way that you said you did. Jean, do you think she's um, ever going to leave that organization? I was about to say, I think she's still working at the same company. <laughs> she's still there. She's moved two levels up in the organization as she's acquired more skill set, that sort of thing. Even with all the poaching going on and recruiting and that kind of thing, Incredible. I'm not worried about her. Yeah, you know, she'll be with us for a long time. You know, you know, it's funny. I mean, you said at the beginning of the conversation, you've been working on this book for a number of years. And I don't know how old this story is, but it really dovetails right into today, right? I mean, you know, there's study after study that shows that employees are not necessarily attracted to companies or staying with companies just on compensation alone. I mean, uh, the big word in 2022 is flexibility, which, which, you gave the perfect example, which is why you hear so much about the four-day work week and working from home and you know, you know, remote working and being mobile. It's 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 all part of the you know the opportunity to you know compensation comes in many different forms for a lot of people, right? Yeah, and it look, we are in in a place in our history where um, people who are saying, I can't wait until it gets back to how it used to be. That's not ever coming back. No, we not. are in the future of work right sure. now. Uh, we, we adopted an unlimited PTO policy this year for the first right. time. Right. Because what do I care about? I care that my clients are stupidly delighted. Right. That's what I really want, right? And if my guys can do that and my ladies can do that in, in two days or four days a week, that's what I'm paying for. I'm paying for the results. I'm not paying for the time, which is true in 90% of my position. Some some places you just have to have people show up to unlock the door and answer the phones and that sort of thing. Sure. But we are actively looking for as many flexible options. And I'll tell you this, Gene, uh, uh, two years ago, I didn't think I could hire anybody remotely. I thought everybody had to be in my building doing the work. That was wrong. Yep. And I now have people in um, in Europe. I have people in Arizona and uh, uh, Florida, you know, all over the country. And my clients are happier. Yep. And the talent pool for me has gotten much deeper. Yep. COVID has definitely accelerated what was already there. And um, correct. it's interesting. Um, let's talk about love in the workplace. <laughs> you write that, you know, you can't say that at work, right? But yeah, it's a powerful word to use and one that shouldn't be avoided. I, I firmly believe that. Now, uh, you know, obviously that goes inside the bro- brackets of appropriately, you know, so we don't want to, uh, to be shotgunning and making people feel uncomfortable in any way. But the most important thing that I've learned on this point is love is a verb. It is something that you do. It is a behavior. So you don't even have to use the word as long as you are performing the action. Sure. And so, um, um, I, you know, just tons of things. But uh, one, of, one of my team members has always wanted to own his own home. He's very young. He's 24 years old. He makes the money to do it. He can, he can buy a home. It's not a big deal as far as finances go. He doesn't know how to get from A to B. Yeah. So last year I sat down with him, you know, six hours over a couple of three weeks and showed him the things that I was raised to understand, but he was not. And we showed him that and then showed up to his closing, helped him find the realtor, helped him find the house, helped him negotiate it, bought the house plant, made a gift in the backyard where we fenced the backyard in so he can put his pool in, all of that sort of thing. And my entire company showed up, those that were local showed up at his closing. So when he walked out of that closing with his keys, we were there to applaud him and celebrate that, that growing into the next phase of life. All of that was an act of love. Right. None of that was a profitable venture. I didn't sell the house. I didn't get a piece of the commission. I didn't get, uh, you know, it cost me money, but it was an act of love. And again, should he be recruited? Would he, would, you know, he would at least have to evaluate, will the new place treat me as good as the old place does? Right. So I guess the takeaway is for a CEO is that, you know, you, you have to find what employees love about their job. You can talk openly about it. Um, and and that, that's a challenge that we have as CEOs, right? It absolutely is. Cause we, you know, we, like everybody else get buried in the details. We, yeah. we can't see the forest for the trees. And our job is to keep both the forest and the trees in focus and, and act appropriately each time. And one of the exercises that I have CEOs do is gratitude and active love exercises. What are you doing today to promote 
love in the life of one of the people that you care about. Hmm. You know, it, you know, it's funny because sometimes employees do get lost as well in the minutiae of their jobs. And, you know, let's face it, most businesses in this country are, you know, they're, they're pretty boring, dirty businesses. You know, like my practice, we have about 600 clients and most of them are family owned businesses and they're coating paper and film, they're cutting packaging supplies, they're, you know, they're, they're making foam for shipping, you know, like this sure. is not like exciting stuff. But at the same time, you know, if you take a step back and you say, listen, you know, the, the work that you're doing is contributing so much to society, you know, I mean, you know, people need this product. So because it, it contributes to other products that gives people enjoyment and makes their life better. Um, I think that also helps people create a love for their job. They're, they're not just doing it. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. So perspective is an executive function, right? Right. We right. have the perspective because of where we sit in the organization. And a lot of times but we don't, don't, they don't, and we don't share it. One of my favorite uh, little uh, quips is, you know, the sin of the desert is knowing where the water is, but not telling the thirsty man. Yeah. And our employees thirst for relevance, yes. for an understanding of impact. And we don't tell them all the right. time. And right. the greatest thing to me, there's a great story about a, um, uh, somebody working in a hotel, you know, and, and he's the banquet manager or he's a banquet server or something of that nature. And mm -hmm. somebody goes up to him and says, you know, you know, what do you do for a living? And he says, oh, I make dreams come true. Right. Right. That's what he thought his, uh, his job was. The other story there is, uh, you know, the, the mason working on the cathedral. You know, the first guy says, well, I, my job's to chop rocks over here. And the next guy says, I'm building a house of the Lord. You know, it's a perspective issue. And, it, and again, it's our job to provide that perspective on the impact that we make in the world so that our employees can share in that. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Okay. Um, your final part of the book, I mean, we, we, we talked about, again, culture, we talked about people, uh, you know, we talked about motivation, uh, but your final part of the book is, I mean, I'm a CPA, so this gets right up my alley is, is numbers, right? Numbers, um, yeah. And, and, you know, Trey, I have found, listen, first of all, I, I, some people get romanticized about running businesses, both big and small. I mean, my best clients know how to buy something for a buck and sell it for three. You know, they, they know their margins, they know their math, they're able to quote, they're able to, they, they understand their costs. Um, you know, running a business is, you, know, you can say that you're changing the world, you can try and get romantic about it, but in the end, um, it, it, it is about, you know, revenues being higher than your costs so that you generate profits. And you talk, you start out your section about KPIs, key performance indicators, uh, and why they're so important for a CEO. Like you're a CEO, can, you cannot be avoiding this stuff. So talk to me about KPIs. Why, why are they so important? And can you share with yeah. us, just give us your thoughts on what KPIs you think are important you know, for businesses yeah. to follow? Absolutely. So, so like all of the other, both of the other sections, you know, this is a mindset and an agenda item. Right. So the job of the CEO is not to crunch the numbers necessarily, right. although it's, it's often, you know, good to be able to do so for sure, so that you can uh, gut check things that are coming across your desk, but more importantly, to set the agenda around that. So for example, you know, if I'm not able today to turn a dollar into three, but my culture says that we turn one dollar into three, then my numbers section of my business should be supporting that at every at every turn. And KPIs are the useful uh, milestones on the road to say this is where we're headed, and this is how we know that we're going in the right direction. They can be hard numbers, and they should be. So top line revenue, bot uh, bottom line revenue, you know, uh, margin. Sure. Um, you know, a contribution, all those kinds of things should be uh, things that we track in an organization to know are our actions producing the results that we want for sure. There are also soft numbers that people should have mm. in the organization. And this, this rubs some people the wrong way. So for an example, I set a personal goal one year to write 500 thank you cards to people in my world my company, my customers, people that I knew in town, whatever it happened to be. That was a soft KPI for me because the person that I wanted to be, which is an I am formulation, mm -hmm. was a grateful person who expressed his gratitude. 
the way that I tracked my ability to do that and improved my ability to do it was to take a task and do it many, 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 many times until I was very good at it. And so even today, I find myself particularly gifted in, in ways that I can say thank you to people because I said thank you a whole lot that year. Sure. Um, and so you can have those soft KPIs that may or may not have affected the profitability of the business one iota. And so I like to have both of those categories. You know, you, you, you talked a little bit in your book about Charles Schwab and, and how he was sort of ahead of his time. Uh, you know, after World War II, when he was starting his financial services firm, you, he was, um, you know, he, he shared numbers, like a little scorekeeping, you know, with, with his employees and his managers and, uh, you know, everyone. And, and I, I want to get your thoughts on, on sharing data with your employees. Some businesses, um, you know, are very private and confidential. Um, there's been a a significant increase over the past few years in employee-owned businesses, you know, ESOPs. Yeah. And yet one of the big drawbacks is that the owners of the companies, if they're going to share a piece, if they're going to sell a piece of their company to their workforce, they're going to have to accept the fact they're going to have to share, you know, their P&L data or, or yeah, information. Right. Yep. It's an issue, you know? Um, so, so give me your thoughts on, on sharing numbers with your, with your employees. So trust begins in vulnerability and transparency. Right. So if you are married, if you are dating, if you are entering into a business relationship with somebody, the more uh, the trust that you want to generate, the more you have to share about who you are and uh, the more you have to share your ups and your downs. Right. So I'm a, a, a recently minted private pilot and I have made a significant commitment that anytime I post on uh, Facebook or anything about flying, that I tell the good and the bad from the flight that I took. Right. Because that's being truly transparent. Sure. And so right now I'm struggling with landings. It's a thing that has come up again in my training. And frankly, I wouldn't have anybody go up in the plane with me right now <laughs> because I'm not confident enough in that. Right. Well, same thing in business. As far as our numbers go, you have to be transparent and vulnerable. Now, me sharing that weakness with you just now did not change your opinion of me to say this guy's an idiot or he's, no, no, you know, no. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust this guy at all. As a matter of fact, you I wouldn't fly with more. you, of course, but you know, I, <laughs> not yet. I I wouldn't let you. But <laughs> when you did go up with me, you would have this idea that Trey shared with me the good and the bad. And if he has now evaluated that he's a safe person to fly with, I feel better and more confident in doing that exact same thing in the business. There's a pucker factor that comes right. when you say, I'm going to share the nitty gritty details of the business with people for two reasons. One, it's a poverty mentality. If they know how much I make or what I spend on anything that I spend in the business, they will have an opinion that is contrary to that. And that's right. probably true. Right. But if you don't do the part of educating them to think like a business owner when it comes to business math, you're right. You shouldn't share anything. So for us, we spent an entire year and we still have a training module when you onboard with us where we show you this is the unit economic of this business. If we sell this thing, we make this amount of money and that breaks down in this way and this goes to salary and this goes to travel and this goes we show all of that before we give them real numbers. Right. And then when they see real numbers, they can come back and say, this is interesting. Now, the success of this, when you know that this is working, is when someone comes to you and says, hey, we're spending money in this way, but I think we could spend it in this way and either get more or spend less. Right. And that is when that's like the nirvana of being a CEO, when people are caring about the bottom line of your business as much or more than you do. So them caring about the bottom line, and then of course you caring about them. Um, you talk near the end of your book about, you know, we talk about sharing the numbers, but you also talk about sharing in the harvest. Um, you talked about, you know, giving spot bonuses during COVID. Um, I like that. I like the concept of spot bonuses. I, I, I It's discretionary. It's not formalized. Um, if, I don't know, if you're having a bad year, you know, you know, you maybe you don't give it, but if you're having a decent year, it, it's a great way to share money, you know, with your employees. Um, and I always say like, you know, I'd rather give my money to my people than to the U.S. government and taxes, you know? Sure, sure. Absolutely. At least there's a return on, on one of those. And during COVID we had, you know, it was a, it was a 
pressure-filled time for everybody. We had one of our largest um, uh, clients not paying us for about 14 months. Mm. We still did the work on the account because it was the right thing to do, but man, it was, it was tough. And so, um, you know, we had about, uh, about 19 people. I took uh, those really huge tomahawk steaks. Yeah. And, and I found a vendor that I absolutely love. Arate Meat is the name of it. Free plug for those guys. Delicious, <laughs> vacuum sealed, gorgeous meat. Sent it to 18 of the 19 people. The 19th person was a vegetarian. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. I can't send them a, a stalk of romaine lettuce, but I found out that they love uh, ramen from a specific place in San Francisco. So I called that place. They said, we don't ship. We're not doing this. You know, we're closed for pandemic as well, right. but here's the supplier that we get the ramen. So it was this detective, uh, you know, uh, trail that I had to find. And we sent her this huge cooler full of, uh, of ramen ingredients and that sort of thing. And she felt just as much part of the team sure. as everyone else who got a big steak and that sort of thing. And that was one of the ways that we were sort of alleviating the pressure and make, you know, bringing people together. It was financially a hard thing to do because I didn't have the money coming in the front door to do that on the back end. But I knew that we would find a way to fix that. So have motivational intelligence, right? Focus not only yourself, but your employees. I think, I feel, I am. Uh, Be bold like Caesar, right? Be decisive, make decisions when you feel that something is right or know that it's right. You got to, that's why you get paid the big bucks as the CEO. Um, You got to articulate your values in your company to create the kind of culture that you want. You should have rituals in your company uh, because even whether they're persistent or they're daily rituals, they're important. You know, the, the, the little details really matter when you're evaluating your employees or hiring employees. Um, I love the idea of, of having that. I think I feel I am, you know, getting their opinions and their perspectives, you know, just behind the, their job tasks, you know, really what are, what are their points of view on certain things is very important. Um, Trey, we talked about compensation and how that's not everything, you know, and, and flexible right. working four day work week, you're offering unlimited paid time off. There's depends on your employees. That's the kind of culture you have. It's fine to love your job and give your employees perspective as to how important what they're doing really is overall for society. Uh, and then you talked about numbers, having KPIs and, you know, and, and, and sticking, maybe even sharing them with your, with your employees and also, um, Sharing the sharing the bounties with employees when you can buying yep. steaks or ramen, uh, depending on <laughs> depending on your employee. Did I miss anything? Is there is there any other big sweeping concepts that that I I mean I don't want to give away everything in this book. It's that good, uh, and you go into a lot more detail in the book and tell a lot more stories. Yeah, it's a lot more playbook oriented, obviously, in the book, and 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 uh, and we actually have the publisher has requested a workbook to come, and so sure. we're working on that now. That'll come sort of uh, available uh, within the next couple of months as well. The only thing I think, uh, Gene, that's that's worth sort of exploring is this sure. last concept, because I get asked a lot of times, okay, how do I be a good CEO? Well, obviously the answer is to read my book, right? <laughs> but how do I be a great CEO? And yeah. I thought a lot about that and I began to really pay attention to the greats in the world. And I went immediately back to my sixth grade algebra teacher, who was the headmistress of my school, uh, Miss Madeline Brownlee. Okay. And Ms. Brownlee had a beehive hairdo. Uh, not that I'm old enough that that was current. That's just how out of date uh, that was. She, uh, she wore these polyester pantsuits, you know, that you could shoot bullets at and they would bounce right off of them. She always had like a little gimmicky brooch, uh, brooch on or something like a ladybug or a butterfly or something right. like that. She was a real character, right? Well, she I had the horn too. rimmed glasses. Yeah. You know, you've, you've seen her. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and Ms. Brownlee, she, you know, I don't want to brag too much, but she made me the homework monitor in, uh, in my sixth grade class, which is really a glamorous uh, position. That's what every middle schooler wants to be. I'm impressed. And I hated it. I hated it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because what it meant was that I had to be the, the, the tough guy, the bad guy that, that marked people off who didn't do their homework. And there were repercussions like study hall or you'd miss an athletic game or something of that nature. And one day it all came to a head where I had the power forward for our junior high school. I had to, you know, make sure he didn't play that weekend and it was bad. And Mm. he was not kind about it as, as you would expect. And I went to Ms. Brownlee and I said, listen, 
I don't know why you chose me for this in the first place, but I want out. All yeah. I'm trying to do is fit in yeah. the middle school. That's what we're trying to figure out. And and this is terrible. And she did that classic teacher move where she pulled her you know, eyeglasses down and looked over at me and called me by my last name. And she said, Mr. Taylor, do you know why I chose you for this? Because you have the ability to see right and wrong. And because of that, you're going to go on to do great things. Right. right. And she said, incidentally, I noticed on this homework report, which I didn't think she ever read, you marked yourself that you didn't do the homework this week. And I said, yes, ma'am, I didn't do it. So I marked that. And she said, right and wrong matter, Mr. Taylor. I'll see you on Monday. What she did for me in that moment was tell me something about myself that I did not know. Right. She precepted a gift in me. She perceived it before it was perceptible for myself. And then she evoked it from me, Latin word ex vocata, call from within. She called it out in me. And to this day, I am someone who believes that I know the difference between right and wrong and can make the right choice. Uh, six weeks later, I was walking down the hall and she had a new student and she said, Mr. Taylor, come and meet Mr. Cannon. I want you to take care of him and introduce him to everybody in the school. Todd Cannon is my best friend to this day, 30 something years later. We talk three times a week. Hmm. Uh, six weeks after that, there was a sign up run for student council. She grabbed me by the ears. Why is your name not on that list? And I said, because I would never do that. That's, you know, that's like getting 500 bosses. I don't want that. She said, put your name on that list. <laughs> to this day, I am in politics and I serve in political uh, uh, roles. Uh, the governor's a good friend of mine because we work hard to get good mm. people elected and that sort of thing. The little things that she did for me in calling out the gifts that I had no idea that I had and never would have had called out. Mm. That's what great leaders do. And so to you, to your audience, to any of your clients who may listen to this, start today. Go and have an uncomfortably open conversation about what you see inside someone and convince them to bring it out into the world. If you don't do anything else, that is why, in my belief system, you've been called to a position of leadership today. The book is The CEO Only Does Three Things, Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite, and the author is Trey Taylor. Trey, great, great job with this book. I really enjoyed it, and uh, great conversation as well. I really enjoy that too. Um, uh, thank you so much for taking the time, and, and I appreciate it. I want to wish you the best of luck with this book. You deserve it. I'm looking forward to the workbook and, uh, you know, and, and the next series of books that I think this is going to generate over the years, so... Uh, I just want to thank you very much. Wonderful, Gene. Thanks so much for those kind words. And, uh, uh, you know, I hope that the book blesses people in the way that it has blessed uh, me living through it and bringing it uh, out into the world. You've been listening and watching Biz Books. My name is Gene Marks. Thank you very much. We'll be back in another two weeks with another interview with another great author, just like Trey. Thanks so much for spending the time. We'll see you then. Take care. <laughs>